the 27th episode of The Week with Roger, a conversation between analysts about all things telecom, media, and technology from Recon Analytics. I'm Don Kellogg, and with me as always is Roger Entner. How you doing, Roger? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. So this week we're going to talk about the digital divide and how the federal government should address broadband access. We've invited Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee to talk with us about it. Dr. Lee is a senior fellow and director for the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institute. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with the problem. So recently you wrote an article in Democracy titled, Why America Needs a New Tech Deal, where you outline both the problems that exist with broadband access today, particularly for lower income and minority communities, as well as some policy prescriptions for how we could address these challenges. To start, can you give us some framing around the challenges we face with universal broadband access? Oh my goodness, I don't know where to start. And so I'll I'll sort of jump in and give the uh, headline version of this piece that was recently published in Democracy Journal and, and where the motivation came from. I mean, clearly President Biden and Vice President Harris have a host of challenges and a host of really important existential threats as we navigate through the consequences of the pandemic. But more importantly, we've seen this administration come really hard when it comes to the type of challenges that they've experienced or we've experienced as a country when it comes to broadband access. You think about the 50 million children K through 12 that were sent home sometime around the same time this year. And think about the 15 to 16 million of them who were without broadband access or a device and the 9 million who didn't have either. And those young people, K through 12 public students in particular, were disproportionately people of color. They were poor. They were living in rural areas. And, you know, the digital divide existed before the pandemic. And it certainly really was exacerbated as a result of the pandemic. And so I think the reason that I was motivated to think about a tech new deal is that I see the same type of economic circumstances that we experience. And of course, Roger and Todd, I was not born during the Great Depression, but I know that what former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had to go through with his new deal in terms of revitalizing the economy and finding the type of programs and services that would not only bring people together, but rebuild local communities, you know, my opinion opinion, the train has left the station. We are now an online versus inline economy. And as a result of that, there's just so much more work to do. Thus, the Tech New Deal, which I think is at the core of really examining the type of approaches that we've had to digital access and what we need to do to get our act together to ensure that no one is ever left offline. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. We really have to find a way of how to connect rural communities and urban communities alike, because it's so critical that we have uniform access in this in this country. Yeah, you know, I agree with that, Roger. And part of my challenge has been, and you've been around, you know, as I have on these issues, and I, I look to your research oftentimes to see how you're monitoring many of these trends. I mean, we've had an underrepresentation of and, and somewhat inaccurate accounts of who's actually not been connected. We know from accumulation of research that comes out of the Federal Communications Commission, Pew Research Center, what industry has collected, that we're off in terms of what the actual number of disconnected Americans look like. But what is most important is that we've seen the growing demand, especially during the pandemic, 
and the requirements of social distancing of technology access. So with that being the case, we already had problems in rural America when it came to connectivity, and we had challenges in terms of affordability more so in urban areas. Now we have this perfect storm where most people who have not had this on this radar on their radar are now realizing just how significant the digital economy is to our economic sustenance. And that's where I think to your point, it's this is one of those cases where you can go to a dinner party and sort of sweep it under the rug, but eventually someone, just that one person is coming to the dinner party is going to see that dust under that rug and want to know why it's there. And I think what we're seeing today is that the digital divide and the concerns that it is actually causing or the rippling effects of not being connected are just becoming much more prominent and it's having greater consequence for those that are digitally excluded. Well, and you've, you've lived this, right? For a time you were running a nonprofit that was providing access to underserved communities with broadband. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I have a book coming out this fall. It's entitled Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. And it it, it integrates many of those stories. The book was actually before the pandemic. I um I visited seven cities across the country just asking people about their broadband access. And I had the opportunity in the course of writing the manuscript to reflect on those years as a graduate student working in what we then called uh, community tech centers. And I'm not going to say my age, and I'm glad no one can see me, but back then, and Roger, you'll get a kick out of this, we were using uh, modems and DSL technologies to connect computer centers. Oh, okay. I've, I've, been, I've been there. I, I started in this with, with dial-up. Yes. I have my first Apple computer in, in the early 1980s. So like... Well, you beat me on that one. I didn't have one in the 80s. I had one in the 90s. We did, for example, uh, a lot of research around this topic. And, and some of the things that were fascinating that we found is that basically every white-collar worker in this country now is, has to work online. Yes. Right? And, and we can't disconnect Americans based on, on their occupation. And also we did some research, and, and Don, correct me if I'm wrong, that like for people who have broadband right now, 90% would not move into a place without broadband. Yep, that's yes, right. Yes, yes, it, It's It has really become a, a very critical component of our life and, and of, of economic well-being in this country. Yes. And that's why I propose this tech new deal, because, I mean, you know, years ago, I actually read a report and uh, Raj, I'll be looking forward to your research, because like I said, I do look at your research when I'm thinking about, you know, this topic. Years ago, someone said that having broadband was like having a pool. It was an asset that actually defined livable communities. And that conversation, you know, started years ago when people were considering the extent to which being connected mattered and it mattered for the use cases that you're suggesting. What we're seeing now is that being connected matters even more because it's not just being able to work from home, but communicating with your doctors, you know, having remote learning, being able to communicate with friends and family members 
commerce opportunities and choices and options. I mean, all of this has pretty much defined what I call in my book, you know, the death of analog. And the extent to which that we can make this ubiquitous is really important. But, you know, for people who are listening, it's not an easy task. And I try to tell people that all the time. There are still conversations that closing the digital divide is all about adoption and utilization. And I would suggest, and again, I'm sort of just going back to this tech new deal framework, is that when we look at just the adoption side of digital, we're sort of marginalizing the integration of digital technology into other verticals, which are equally useful. We should be looking at broadband infrastructure, not as something that we just want to provide to people so that they can get online to perform what everybody else does, which I think is very important, the democratization of these networks. But we need to look at it because without it, you cannot work. So you, as a result, are going to be locked out of economic opportunities, social mobility opportunities. You will probably not be engaged in the public dialogue that happens across the internet. And so it's important that we not just look at infrastructure, but we also look at, and this is something I got from some of your previous reports, the type of workforce opportunities that are going to be emboldened by having access to networks, advanced communication networks, as well as the ability to invest in broadband for the purpose of building local economies. We will have 100,000 plus businesses that will be permanently closed in local communities. And we need to replace those businesses with businesses that mirror or replicate, even if it's on a small scale, some of these, you know, online delivery services or online, you know, sewing storefronts. This is the way that we're actually moving. And I would be disappointed if we don't have a conversation right now in the federal government under President Biden about how we activate technology as opposed to place it in a complementary role. When we're just worried about websites that shut down because of vaccination and we're not engaging and empowering the technology to help us create greater efficiencies in our economy. I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things what I look at is like, why are people not connected? Yes. And we, we have a lot of discussion about the first two topics because it, it actually is a threefold problem. One is people can't get it because there is no physical infrastructure for them. Then they can't afford it. And there's an affo- affordability gap. But the third one that that we often ignore is the people who don't get it. They don't understand why is this important. And I think uh, a comprehensive program needs to address all three. The, the education part is important. Yeah. And I mean, particularly as we look at the, the evolution of technology into a space of, you know, machine learning algorithms, something else I do at Brookings that has a potential to use our data as currency to create different types of mismatch products and services that can be predatory for certain populations. You know, I agree with you on those three legs of the stool, and I think they're all equally important because you can't solve one without the other. You know, you have to, you know, change the universal service formula in terms of how we invest in broadband and how we invest in certain technologies to the foreclosure of other technologies. And if we even have enough for the federal government to actually close the broadband divide, I do think that it is going to be a partnership between the private sector and the public sector. And there will be areas where, you know, government's going to need to be technology agnostic and rethink the social contract of universal service to make this work, especially our lifeline program, which actually adapts, speaks to the needs of the affordability concerns. But I also think to your point, 
is, you know, do we need a national program? You know, when I was doing this work more than 20 years ago, we've always talked about digital divide, digital equity, digital inclusion. Um, I was part of many discussions around building digital inclusion um, work plans and getting the right people in there. I mean, that work is still happening. There are groups that are doing this daily. And when I was on my tour, there were many people who were still around from the times when I had my computer centers, who were still, you know, hitting the pavement, trying to make sure that people were understanding or had the digital literacy to compete on the internet. But I do want to keep pushing our argument because I think this is still one of those areas. I'll just sort of leave it here. You know, there's been a lot of resistance to remote learning. I'm one of those parents. I have a 14-year-old that's sitting in a room and I don't really know exactly what she's doing when I'm online for work, right? But even in the hardship of having our children disconnected from schools and really, you know, the fact that the reality is that there are going to be African-American and Latina students that will be way behind when it comes to cognitive learning because being disconnected has just fed into the existing systemic inequalities. But there is one light at the end of the tunnel that I continuously tell superintendents as well as employers is that my daughter and others like her are learning the tools of the 21st century, what it's going to be like in a future work environment to work in disaggregated work environments or remotely, and to understand how to reorganize your time and your energies to be successful. Because Roger, you know, like I know, this new economy is so different than the economies of our parents or the economies of you know ourselves. And so it's important for us to keep pushing that envelope to contextualize. If I had a Venn diagram, everything you said would be in the middle of the circle. And that's why I'm still proposing that we need to look at technology the same way that we look at transportation, the same way we look at education, and figure out where is there complementary overlap in digital tools and resources that make these verticals more efficient. But more importantly, how are we going to leverage what this new digital economy is actually going to do for the United States? And how are we going to make sure everybody's ready for it? Yeah, and and we can't have one part of the society be disconnected from the other, and and we create a perpetual underclass. Yes, that is yes. <laughs> everything this country doesn't stand for because it it makes it makes life and the career for for people who have have less even harder. Yes. And and makes it even more difficult, you know, to fulfill the American dream. It's not enough to 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 dream it. It's we need to live it and we and and it's the role of government programs to make that easier. But I think with it we also need to expand the the funding formula yes. uh, of it. Yes. Right now it's being solely funded on phone bills, right? And the taxes and fees uh, on our phone bills are approaching sin level, you know, amounts of, of what the government usually charges for things that they want to discourage from using, not that they they add to it. And one of the things that we, we are looking at is like, can we expand the funding base to all the companies and, and means where they actually benefit from it, right? Right now, it's it's levied through the phone companies. But we have, for example, online companies that have benefited handsomely from the build-out of the internet and don't have to contribute at all. And I think it would be more than fair if they would contribute to what they they benefit from so so handsomely. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's actually a chapter in my book around reviewing and exploring the universal service contract. I do believe that, you know, consolidation has forced us into this quagmire where the resources that would normally be available through telephonic services have been stretched. And we're now at a state where closing the digital divide is an all hands on deck matter, but it also requires the resources that many of these companies where the legislation was, you know, initially leveraged against, they don't have the funds and that's just being passed on to consumers. So I do make a similar proposal in the book after exploring the ad revenue streams of platform companies and the extent to which you should be able to assess some of the commitment of universal broadband access to these companies as participants on the network. I mean, it's clear to say that years ago we would have had concerns primarily around funding universal service or, you know, around equipment and network concerns. I call it uh, bytes or bits and bytes, right? The bits and bytes argument I call in the book. But now, you know, we're really focused on these functions, these broadband enabled functions, services, some of them very perfunctory that we need platform companies and other companies that write up these networks to no longer be exempted from. Could you imagine 1% of the revenue of platform companies, which I suggest in my book, how much money that could actually aid in getting real-time access to broadband to communities in need. I mean, that also suggests, and, and I'll just add this quickly to what you also talked about, I also think that it's important, and, and this is another proposal in the book, around, you know, rethinking where this money sits. You know, we didn't have time during this pandemic to sort of sort through the reimbursement requirements from FCC's USAC to get money to schools to be able to deploy Wi-Fi hotspots and other you know measures to keep kids connected. And it was an abject failure that we were dependent upon not only a system whose equation, reimbursement equation, was outdated in terms of formula for return on investment, but also took time, right? And so I think we need to move away from that. We are experiencing what I call broadband insecurity. And that is much like food insecurity, housing insecurity. And I know, you know, some people push against that because of the potential partisanship around this issue. But at the end of the day, you know, we haven't gotten rid of the SNAP program yet. And we still are, are looking at disparate impact when it comes to housing for certain communities. So I, I think I think you're completely right. We've got to move in a direction of reexamining our universal service fund. Yeah. In, in general, I, I think today's telecom and tech industry needs today's rules and regulations. And we shouldn't rely on regulations that were conceived before there was an internet or at the very beginning of an internet. So I think we we need a telecom rewrite. We need a new, fresh look because we're not living in 1934 anymore and we don't live in 1996 anymore. That's right. And the the, the thing is completely different. And for example, there was the whole argument uh, about the E-rate program, right? Which was designed for connectivity in the classroom. But as the pandemic has shown, the classroom has moved into people's living rooms, right? (laughs) And I think... Chairman Pai did a lot of right things, but here he was he was certainly wrong to not allow the, the E-rate program to fund the classroom in the living room. Oh, yes. I mean, I'm working on a piece right now that is, again, in my book. You know, you know how it is, Roger. You write a book, you're like, it's in my book. It's in my book. <laughs> but, um, but I'm working on a piece right now, which is proposing an initiative that I think should be an interagency um 
program between the Department of Education, FCC, um, and potentially other agencies, which is No Child Left Offline. Yeah. We really gained a lot of bipartisan support with the No Child Left Behind Act that was initiated by Bush. And I think it's important for us to look at what does it mean to have no child left offline? I mean, the fact that our children are still going back into school, again, I'm very excited about it, particularly when it is safe for my daughter to return. But the challenge is that today it is a pandemic. Tomorrow will be a resurgence of a California wildfire. Next time it may be a resurgence of a variant. We have to give our children, K through 12, public school, the ability to be competitive in this new digital economy. And if we think for a moment that this pandemic has sort of forced us back into the normalcy that we had prior to it, we're fooling ourselves. This is about a reimagination. Like you said, it's a reimagination of work. It's a reimagination of education. It's a reimagination of healthcare. And it allows us, I think, this ability to see what we can do to alleviate some of the disparities that have been waged against certain populations who have been disconnected because of who they are or where they live or what they're accessible to or have access and the ability to do. And I think that's, you know, you're completely right. It's a new sheriff in town. And I'm not talking about a regulatory sheriff. I'm talking about the power of innovation and technology to change the course of how we live, learn, earn, and even in many cases, love in our in our society. Awesome. Awesome. No, thank, thank you for coming on the show. I'm very yeah. much looking forward to reading your book. Yeah, me too. <laughs> 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 me too. Trust me. I'm, I can't wait till it comes out because I'm, you know, there's been no better time. But thank you so much for having me, Don, Roger. I really appreciate it. I, I always enjoy reading the research that you guys right. put out. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lee. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank All right. you. Bye bye. <laughs>